0: This is God's word from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one, the only true God,
1: We are really privileged today to have a guest preacher, a friend of mine named Justin Anderson uh, from Icon Church. I'll tell you, one of my absolute favorite things about being a pastor is getting to meet with other pastors because it is a value of our church that Sound City Bible Church does not exist just for Sound City Bible Church. I'll put it another way. We're not the only church on the block. Amen? Uh, all who lift up the name of Jesus, all who seek to uh, make Jesus known and and teach the scriptures, uh, we're on the same team. And so I am really privileged to have uh, uh, Justin joining us today to, to, just to get to sit and listen and learn as well. So Justin, would you join me up here? Friends, would you say welcome to him as he comes here? I'll I'll let Justin introduce himself here in a moment, but uh, Justin and I met about seven years ago, a little over seven years ago. We were doing some uh, classes together, uh, retrain classes, and you were on crutches when we met. That's all I remember.
2: Yep. yep. Do you know why? Uh, yes, but I don't want to admit it. Okay, so
1: <laughs> so that's the image I have is he, he's perpetually on crutches in my mind for some reason. It was a style choice. It okay, was it was a fashion was accessory. Hard. Uh, At the time, you were, I think, leaving uh, from a church you'd planted in Phoenix, heading to San Francisco to plant a church there. Planted a church in San Francisco. A couple years ago, moved to Bellevue, where he has been a pastor at Doxa Church, which is another uh, group of friends and pastors and people that we know over there. Been teaching and been uh, raising up disciples there. And then right now, like brand new church plant called Icon Church in Capitol Hill down in the central area of Seattle. And so really glad uh, Justin would be here today, would, would teach us. We're really glad to see uh, Jesus-loving churches being planted in the greater Puget Sound area because uh, we need lots of them. And there's lots of opportunity to share the love of Christ with people. And so what I'd love to do is I'd love to just pray for you and then hand it over to you and let, uh, let you teach us from John 17 today. So will you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for my brother Justin Gotta thank you for him uh, being willing to be here, to serve us, to teach us. God, thank you for the wisdom you've given him, the perspective you've given him. God, even the longevity in, in ministry and church planting that you've given him. And God, I pray uh, for Icon Church. I thank you for the people of Icon Church that you're gathering. God, I, I pray for even those who don't know it yet who are going to be a part of Icon Church because, Jesus, you're going to redeem them and save them and draw them to yourselves. And I pray that you would do a mighty work uh, in and through that church plant God, I pray for our time now. Would you send your Holy Spirit to uh, bring the words of the scriptures to life in our hearts and our minds? Would you uh, empower uh, my brother Justin to teach us uh, exactly what it is that we need to hear today, that we might grow closer to you, our loving Father and our Savior Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Take it away, brother.
2: Thanks, man. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's always an honor to fill somebody's pulpit. Uh, Aaron has been uh, a good friend. Uh, Anytime you move to a new city, it's always kind of a question mark what the reception is going to be, especially uh, when you start to plant a church. You never know uh, how other local pastors are going to respond to that, and uh, Aaron has been uh, over-the-top gracious. Uh, He has met with me several times, given me a ton of advice. Uh, Pete actually came and led for us uh, a couple weeks back at our little church plant, and so uh, I am uh, am blessed uh, to return the favor, perhaps, here. Uh, today, I aspire to Aaron's level of mustaching, uh, and so... He's, uh, he's really raised the bar in multiple ways for me, um, so thankful for that. Um, I, I want to say something real quick about Icon, just uh, because sometimes I get a little quizzical look when I tell people that I'm planting a church called Icon Church, and they wonder if I mean the little thing on your desktop, and I don't. Uh, but uh, the, my, my favorite theological concept, one of, the, one of the ideas in the Bible that I think is the most powerful is the idea of the Imago Dei, that every single human being is made in the image of God. Right? That is a, a theological concept that has changed the world. It is the foundation upon which, uh, countries have abolished slavery, have overcome sexism, has broken down all dividing walls, is this idea of the Imago Dei, that we are image bearers of God. And the underlying word there in the Greek is a cone or icon. Uh, so that we would see one another as image bearers of God. In fact, one of our first gatherings that we did, we did a prayer walk around Cal Anderson Park, which is uh, the park right there in the middle of Capitol Hill. And as we were walking around, uh, I saw a grown man dressed as a unicorn, which uh, in Capitol Hill is Wednesday. uh, But... um uh, but when we gathered back up, um, asked everybody, hey, did you, did you notice the unicorn? Of course, everybody did. Uh, some were more excited about it than others to see a unicorn in the wild, uh, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I said, this, that, that unicorn, that man, is an image bearer of God beneath everything else. Whether he knows it or not, uh, believes it or not, he is an image bearer of God. And so not only is Icon um, the, the idea that we are made in the image of God, but it's also a posture that we are choosing to take towards the people around us, the people that we have been given by God uh, to care for, to see through uh, not only the muck and the mire and the sin and the brokenness, but to see through the success and the power uh, and, and the accomplishment, to see through that just as clearly to the fact that they are image bearers of God. And then finally, that the only way that we image bearers of God can actually fully be who we are, is uh, by our faith in the only true icon. Colossians calls him the image of the invisible God, Christ himself. And so uh, this idea of icon works at so many different levels that uh, I I felt like I had to uh, name our church after it. But uh, I have five kids. I've now planted three churches and started a college ministry, so I'm done naming things, okay? (laughs) Okay. Everything else is just going to, I'm just going to pick a name out of a hat, because uh, I'm, I'm out of that. So um, I do have five kids. I have a wife, uh, most importantly, <laughs> hence the five kids. Um, <clears throat> I have a wife named Emily, and then five uh, young kids, 10, 7, 5, 3, and 1, and uh, they are way cuter than your kids. Um <clears throat> Uh, but that's neither here nor there. We are in John 17. If you want to turn to John 17, we're going to do the first 10 verses in John 17. And anytime I approach a, a text like this one, I, uh, I, 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 I read through the text multiple times and I ask myself, which part of this text kind of bugs me, right? Like what, what maybe challenges me or uh, is, is confusing to me or just kind of rubs me wrong. And thankfully in this passage, it's the very first verse. So uh, Jesus says, says, when Jesus uh, had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and he's praying, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The fact that Jesus is asking to be glorified, to be made much of, to be made famous, to be made well known, is, uh, it's an uncomfortable request. Right. Like, it's not a, that's not a prayer request that I would feel comfortable making in small group. Right as we go around, well, my aunt's dying and my mom's got cancer. I would like God to make me famous, actually, uh, if that's okay. And uh, and so we all kind of bow our heads and pray. That that would make me uncomfortable. And so when uh, Jesus asks the Father to glorify Him, and that's simply what it means—to make famous, to make known—that's uncomfortable to me. And so uh, whatever the thing, the same thing I do every time I get confused by the Scripture, I go to um, a source that I have been accused of considering the fourth person of the Trinity. Uh, C.S. Lewis. And uh, Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. It's actually a compilation of sermons, but the very first sermon is called The Weight of Glory. And it is one of the most powerful things I've ever read. It's changed my life in significant ways. It's one of those books that I read once a year. Uh, And he says this in Weight of Glory. It's a lengthy quote, but it's worth it. He says, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, The desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion and therefore of hell rather than heaven. But when I began to look into this matter, I was shocked to find such different Christians as Milton, Johnson, and Thomas Aquinas taking heavenly glory, quite frankly, in the sense of fame or good report, but not fame confirmed by our fellow creatures, fame with God, approval, or I might say appreciation by God. And then when I had thought it over, I saw that this view was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable the divine accolade, well done, thou good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child, and nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great an undisguised pleasure in being praised. I'm not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions or how very quickly, in my own experience, the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it was my duty to please turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment, before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then she will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing. I think any parent, especially, can understand the difference between these two ideas of glory. The idea of a a, a pure glory that is unadulterated and, and, and just a desire to be known and praised and loved by one whom you are rightly loved by. And then the way that it kind of goes bad. So I mentioned I have five children. My three-year-old, uh, her name is Tess, and she is recently aware of the idea of being beautiful. And so um, she's also our most dramatic child. So um, she will, in the mornings, dress herself, come out of her room with the flourish, and, uh, and say, Daddy, look how beautiful I am. And she is beautiful in spite of what she has put on. She has uh she has a very consistent style which I appreciate. It's uh it's polka dot tights, a floral skirt and a striped shirt. Headband, usually some ears on it, and and she Reminds me how beautiful she is all the time. And occasionally, I, you know, for uh, something like church or or some uh, more formal occasion, I will suggest to her, well, what if you wore this? What if it was black tights and a shirt that matched and, you know, your pigtails? And she says, but daddy, then I wouldn't be beautiful. And I, and I, I disagree. Uh, I disagree with her. And so I tell her, of course, you are beautiful. And I think to myself, in spite of your style choices, not because of your style choices, but of course we know that there's, there's a simplicity to that. There is a preciousness in that. There is a purity in the desire for that kind of glory. And then we all know the other kind, the self-serving, selfish desire to be known and to be famous. And so what I want to do in this passage is explore these two paths to glory, the the kind of pure path of godly glory and the uh, path of kind of self-glory. And I want to do that by looking at three things. One, glory's source. Two, glory's criteria. And three, glory's purpose so glory's source glory's criteria and glory's purpose first glory's source in verse 1 we notice that Jesus goes to the father seeking glory, which we've already talked about how kind of strange that is, but it's especially strange considering if you're aware of Jesus' story at all leading up to this point. I know you've been going through the Gospel of John, and I can't imagine you've missed a week, so you are very aware of the story up to this point, point. and if you remember, Jesus very often will do something miraculous, something worth glory, worth fame, and then he will tell people, don't say anything. Don't tell anybody. In fact, uh, in in Mark chapter one, he heals a man from leprosy and it says, Jesus sternly charged him and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Again, in in Matthew chapter nine, he heals two blind men, says their eyes were open and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. So over and over and over, Jesus has shunned fame, shunned glory, and gone to kind of some great lengths. He says he's sternly talking to these people whose great joy at being healed is overflowing into the giving of glory. And Jesus says, No, don't tell anybody. And in fact, tells the blind man, make sure nobody knows about it. I want you to actively work to suppress my glory. So it's a little strange then that Jesus comes to the Father here in John 17, it's out of character for him to say, now glorify me. So I've been thinking about this this week, and a principle of glory has occurred to me. And it's this. Glory is always a reflection of the giver's desires and ends. So let me say that again. Glory, glory given, is always a reflection of the giver's Desired ends. Okay, so here's what I mean by that. Um, when, when we give one another glory, when we make someone famous, when we make them known, when we praise them in any capacity, it is always in line with what they want us to do. So think about uh, at work, right? Maybe your boss uh, uh, praises you at a staff meeting, tells you how great you're doing, and it's almost always in line with what he wants you to be doing, right? It, it essentially, the praise is great job obeying me, <laughs> right? Like that's, that's almost all glory is good job being what I want you to be, okay? So um, this can be really good, but it's also the challenge and potential temptation of what I'll call horizontal glory, glory that comes from one another. It is, um, by definition, untrustworthy, because if the horizontal glory is dependent on the ends and desires of the person giving it, we know that people are, let's say, fickle. Let's say, don't always have our best interest at heart. Right Again, think about your boss. Perhaps you are starting at a new job and you're putting in some extra hours because you want to get off on the right foot and let them know, hey, I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm a good worker. You can, you, you can depend on me. And so you're putting in 10, 11, 12 hour days to begin with to set a precedent maybe that later you're going to regret. But uh, your boss comes to you after a couple of weeks and you've been putting in these kind of 70 hour work weeks and he goes, hey, Anderson, you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. Love what you're producing. And if we're, we're, if we're foolish, we hear that as, great, boss likes me. And we think it's about me. We think it's about ourselves. But if we were wise, we would know that what he is saying is, great job working so much, keep doing it. He is saying, what, what you are doing, I'm going to praise you for what you're doing. Not who you are, but what you are doing. And then the, the, there's an inherent threat in that, is there? An implicit threat, which is if you stop, so too will the praise, so too will the glory. Now, the best example I could think of this is uh, Colin Kaepernick, right? And regardless of how you feel about the decisions that Colin Kaepernick is making uh, on and off the football field, think about it this the very same people who cheered Colin Kaepernick when he was playing football jeered him when he was kneeling during the anthem. At no point were they cheering Colin Kaepernick. They were cheering it, cheering him when he did the thing they wanted him to do. And the moment he stopped doing the thing they wanted him to do, those cheers went to jeers. The glory was gone, and there was only scorn. Okay, so this is the challenge of horizontal glory. You are constantly subject to the whims of the giver of the glory. And so the, the temptation is that when you get glory, you enjoy that glory, and so you seek more of it and more of it and more of it. And there's the the this is a kind of an inherent desire within us to seek glory. So kids seek glory from their parents, and as they age, they begin to seek glory from their peers and their friends, and as they age, they perhaps begin to seek glory through other means from strangers, like through social media, perhaps. Likes and comments equal glory, and it's addictive, and so Jesus was very careful never to subject himself to the glory of the people around him. He didn't seek horizontal glory because he knew that this person who was just healed was going to give him glory because they were healed. And they, Jesus did a thing for them that they wanted Jesus to do. But if Jesus pivoted and then started to talk about their sin, perhaps that glory would disappear quickly. But Jesus came to the Father and entrusted himself to the Father's glory. Jesus sought vertical glory because he trusted the permanence of the father's character and will. He knew that the father would only give glory for things that were inherently good, and those things would never change. Horizontal glory subjects us to the whims of ultimately self-interested people. Very rarely have I received glory for doing something that was against somebody else's best interest. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, from whom do we seek glory? And whether you're here and you're a Christian or not, you ought to ask yourself that question. Every time you receive glory, you receive fame and honor from some other person, you might ask yourself, why are they giving me this glory? What are they kind of implicitly telling me I need to continue to do? And what value does that come from? Because as far as we seek, as much as we seek that glory, we're seeking to kind of align ourselves with a set of values that will continue to bring about that glory. So that's number one, glory's source. Number two, glory's criteria. Verse two, Jesus goes on, says, Since you have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In verse 4, Jesus tells us the, the kind of criteria by which he is asking for glory. Rice right, comes to the Father and says, glorify me, and then he tells him why he should glorify him. And verse four says, I glorified on, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This, this word accomplished in the Greek is the word telos. That's the root word here. And and if you're allowed to be nerdy enough to have a favorite Greek word, this is mine. Right? Um, telos, the idea behind telos is uh, is often translated perfected or finished or accomplished. And it means that kind of when, when something accomplishes the end for which it was created. So it's not just getting to the end of a story or the end of a project, but it's when you actually fully embrace and are the thing that you were created to be. So when a hammer successfully hammers a nail into a piece of wood that hammer has accomplished its telos that is what it was created to do that was its purpose okay and so Jesus here says that his glory is dependent upon or earned by the fact that he has fulfilled his mission he has manifested his telos so what's Jesus's telos Well, he's told us here a little bit, verses two through four, he continues in verse six. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And if you get hung up on that, he's going to pray for the world later. So chill. (laughs) Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And hear this, I am glorified in them. So what was Jesus' telos? What was the purpose for which he came to earth? To make known who God is, the truth about who God is, to invite the people whom God gave him into relationship with him, right? Salvation. To, To bring about the message of the gospel, to demonstrate the gospel to those who God had given him, and he did it. And so here at the very end, he says, My glory, I am glorified in them. They are the proof in my pudding. Look at them. He says, Father, glorify me because look, I did what you told me to do. I accomplished the task. I fulfilled my telos, the purpose for which I was sent here to the earth. And here is the proof they have believed, they have known you, and they are walking in their faith. So then, what is our telos? If the glory that we would ask from the Father is connected to us accomplishing our telos, it's probably a good question to ask, what is our telos? Well, Jesus tells us that in Matthew chapter 22. Two things. The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, what is the greatest commandment? What is the most important thing that we could give our lives to? Jesus says, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty simple. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we love God? And and this this could be an entire sermon series uh, that Aaron will do later. Uh, I will say this. Let's go to verse 3. Jesus says something kind of remarkable here that I want to point out. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Recognize the difference between what this says and what it doesn't say, which I think we often read a verse like this in in a way that that mischaracterizes actually what eternal life is and the means by which to get it. He says, and this is eternal life, not this is how you attain eternal life. This is how you get eternal life. This is how you're granted eternal life. As if eternal life is a thing that can be given to us, a ticket or a key or some sort of thing that can be possessed. He says, this is eternal life. This is something that we're entering into that we can experience. And this is what it is. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice what word isn't there. The word that. And that they, well, that is there, but no, it's two that's, aren't there? Listen. That they know that you're the only true God and that I was sent from you, Jesus Christ. That's not what it says. And this is a huge difference. If Jesus said, and this is how you attain eternal life. If you know that, God is the only true God and that I am his son, Jesus Christ. That's a different, that's a different gospel. What Jesus does say is this is eternal life that you know, God, not an idea about God, not a truth or a principle about him that you have mentally assented to that he is God. That's, that's not, that's not the question. The question is, do question isn't do you know that God is God? The question is, do you know God who's God? The only true God. Do you know him and do you know Jesus Christ whom he sent? That's eternal life. Knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ whom he sent is eternal life. That's a totally different situation. And 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 something that I don't have time to unpack, but Aaron will. Expertly. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. I want to read another quote from Lewis, because he's great, and I love him. From the way to glory. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And he doesn't mean that in the ultimate sense. It's Lewis to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to, not naming names, may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor. He is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ vere latitat, which means the truth hidden, the glorifier and the glorified. Glory himself is truly hidden. That's incredible. To take that seriously, the fact that your neighbor, and by that I mean your actual neighbor, to have flesh and blood, someone in your mind, your actual neighbor, the person that lives on either side of you, is, as Lewis describes, no mere mortal, not a snob or a mess or a success or a failure. They are an image bearer of God who will one day be glorified in heaven forever or subject to hell. these are the stakes, Lewis says. So when Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, this is no trite statement of accommodation. This is not, well, you should mow your neighbor's lawn. Sure, mow your neighbor's lawn, but but that's not all. That's just just the beginning, right? To take seriously the, the role and the opportunity that we have to love our neighbor in such a way that demonstrates the image of God to them and communicates the image of God in them. That's the opportunity that's laid before us. And yet, some of this is challenging, right? Because not only is, is the prospect of loving God and loving neighbor can be challenging to do consistently and all that. But on the other side of that, I, I know that when I started to think about this, I thought, gosh, is that it? When we start talking about the criteria for glory, to receive glory from God. And Jesus says, well, it's just, it's just accomplishing your telos, which is being the thing that you were made to be just doing the thing that God created you to do. And that challenges me for one very specific reason. The criteria is not about results. It's not about output. It's about action. It's about process. It's about faithfulness. It's about just doing the thing That I'm supposed to do being the person that I'm supposed to be, but it's not measured by its effectiveness. And this challenges me because I think in my heart of hearts, I believe that if we were all ranked on effectiveness, I'd probably be above you. (laughs) Just being honest. I don't know you all very well, but from the looks of it. And my sense is I'm not alone in this, that there's probably a lot of us who wish that there were probably some rankings. We might want to see those rankings. And probably they're different lists for each of us, and somehow they correlate to the things we think we're good at. That what really matters is this thing, because I'm probably at the top. And so this challenges us. It challenges our identity. It challenges the way we see ourselves, the way we measure ourselves because we want to be measured by output because we think we'll win because we think we're responsible for those outputs. We look around at the the success in our life, whether it be business success or family or marriage or uh, righteousness or disciple making or leadership or whatever the case may be. And we look at success and some of us look at failures, and we think we're responsible. We believe that we brought about those outcomes and so deserve the credit for them. And yet that's not at all what the scriptures teach us, is it? This is the beauty and the challenge of the gospel that it kind of lays us bare, takes away all of our desire to rank and order all of our responsibility for outputs and just says, no, be faithful to be who I made you to be and to do what I made you to do. And that alone is worthy of glory. So we have to ask ourselves, are we accomplishing our telos? Are we prioritizing the purpose for which we were made? Number three, Looked at the source of glory. Looked at the criteria of glory. Now, glory's purpose. Go back to verse one. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And now, if I were a cynical person, and I am, um, I, I would look at a line like that suspiciously. Right? Think about what Jesus is saying. Glorify me so that I can glorify you. That's really what I, I, just want to glorify you, God. But in the, the best way to do that is that you make me famous. And then once I'm super famous, I'll make you famous, right? I had a friend in, in, uh, in high school named Matt and Matt wanted to be rich that he, we were you know, people ask, what do you want to be you grow up rich was his answer. But Matt would always say, I want to be rich so that I can give away a lot of money. And at 16, it, that's, it's impossible. That, that's, not, that's not true, okay? That is not why Matt wanted to be rich. He definitely wanted to be rich for the cars. And, and so whenever he would say that, we would all roll our eyes and disbelieve him because there's just no chance that that was his true motive for being rich. But this is Jesus, and so we have to believe him. I struggle I struggle with the phrase glorify God for two reasons. We 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 use that a lot. We hear that a lot. Like oh we should glorify God or that glorifies God or I want to glorify God. I struggle with it for two reasons. One, it's super churchy, right? Like that's a that's a phrase you just it's just a super churchy phrase and that's those those aren't my favorite. Um, two, it's really vague. Like, what does that actually mean to glorify God? And so, um, I had to think about it for a while because I knew I was gonna have to preach on it. And, and so I, I, here's, here's where I've landed. If we think about this, if God glorifies Jesus for accomplishing his task, and his task was to make God known to people in such a way that they would experience eternal life, then that actively also glorifies God, right? It proclaims that God is the kind of God who loves and saves his people at great cost to himself. It it used to bother me a lot when I would read the Old Testament and God would say things like he wants to get glory, That God wants glory and we need to give God glory. He kind of demands glory a lot in the Old and New Testament. And it used to bother me until I realized that God alone multiplies glory. God alone multiplies glory. The things that bring God glory are the things that bring about the flourishing of all people. Think, think about this. When, when I am glorified, when someone tells me, hey, you did a great job on that thing. This, this was really good. That glory, I am like a glory black hole that just sucks it all up for myself and it goes nowhere else. I take in and, and keep all that glory. It terminates on me. Now I might say, you know, oh, glory to God, glory to God. But, eh, you know, and, and so it it, it, just, it just terminates on me. God is different. God is different. Thank God. God is different. The things that bring God glory, the things that make God famous and known, are always things that bring about the flourishing of people. So when I act in accordance with my telos, the thing that God created me to be, and I love him and I love the people around me, that gives God glory because it makes him known, it makes him famous, and it makes him famous as the kind of God who would ask his people to bless other people and love other people. And of course, that multiplies the glory because then I get glorified. God makes me known for the good that I do, but that very good that I do makes him seem glorious. And so it's this cycle that multiplies and multiplies exponentially glory rather than it just terminating on me. And so I realized, well, actually every single time then that I read God saying, I need to get the glory, we need to give the glory to God, it's him saying, listen, I, I want you to flourish. I want you to grow, I want you to be loved, I want you to be cared for, I want you to be protected. And so I've created this, this kind of ecosystem that works in harmony with itself to say, when you act the way you're supposed to act, when you love and care for and protect the rest of my creation, I get glorified because you're walking in obedience with what I do. If you ever did some great thing and someone said, why did you do it? And you said, because God made me to do it. People go, well, that's a great God. So it multiplies glory. Now, all of this culminates, this whole story, this whole section culminates in one little statement in verse one. We can't miss this. He says, the Father, Father, the hour has come. What is the hour? What has come? What is the subject and the context for this entire passage? What is about to happen? Class? Thank you, Pastor. (laughs) The cross. The cross is the background for this whole thing. Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him on the cross. He is asking God to make Jesus' death on the cross something that is dark and evil and looks like defeat into something that is ultimately glorious. Jesus' sacrificial triumph over evil by entering into evil itself and defeating it from the inside by demonstrating our good God's triumphant power over evil and death brings great glory to God. Jesus is coming to him on the eve of greatest sacrifice and greatest pain and greatest suffering. Something that from the outside feels like evil defeat and says, make it known. Make my death known. Make my defeat known. Make this evil and horrific thing done to God incarnate known. Make it glorious. Make it famous. So that the whole world would know that God, the one true God, will go to no end To redeem his creation, to love his people, to call his people back to himself. That that's the kind of God that exists. That that's the kind of God that we serve. There is nothing more glorious, nothing more worthy of honor than to make known the cross to those we've been given. In this way, we glorify Christ who for the joy of our salvation went to the cross and it glorifies our Father, whose character and will is worth anything that we have and anything that we are. Let's pray. Jesus, you, you are glorious you were glorious before time began but your your greatest glory for us was the moment you laid down your life it's it's such a, a, a backwards and upside down and irrational way to attain greatest glory but it is it is just remarkable that the very evil that perverted your world, you turned on itself. You didn't just defeat it with a mighty sword. You entered in. You succumbed to it to defeat it from the inside to show how powerless it is over you. So, Lord, I I, I pray for us here today who seek glory from so many different sources seek the praise, seek the admiration of so many people at this kind of horizontal level. We look at our peers we look at strangers on social media and we look at people we don't even actually know or care about and we are desperate for their glory, desperate for their praise. We have willingly just hooked ourselves to their whim and desire for us. rather than submitting to the only, the only one who has our perfect good in mind. God, may we just submit our, our desires to you, seek your glory each and every day of our lives, that you would be pleased because we are just being who we are, image bearers of God, knowing you, loving you, and loving our neighbors. Pray your blessings upon us. In Christ's name, amen.